Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to another edition of the Fifth Column, members-only podcast, but if you're hearing this, this is just the free version, a truncated version, a short version, where you don't get all the stuff of me saying things about a topic that I shouldn't be talking about. Maybe a little bit of it in this preview, but come on over to wethefifth.substack.com, sign up. There's lots of unbelievable stuff for you over there. It doesn't really cost. It's like a latte. Isn't that what they used to say on that with the uh, Sally Struthers? Just the cost of a chai latte to come over and join us and become part of the ever-growing Fifth community on Substack. So do that, wethefifth.substack.com. But just adding this preamble because this is a live thing that we did yesterday. We do uh, once every month, the second Sunday of the month. You guys can yell at us, ask us questions, tell us we're morons, and we will cut your mic but uh, but it exists. And so this is a sample of the live episode that we did yesterday. And enjoy this preview. We, 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 we know of new methods um, of I attack. saw a um, column from your favorite person, which I think we should um, mention very briefly. Don't, your favorite writer is who? Don't tell me it's Margaret Sullivan. Absolutely. God damn it. <laughs> and he mentioned um, uh, Ron DeSantis's book, and I have to look at the name of it because he's on book tour, which is like a presidential election, you know, uh, pre- it, it pre- totally hit. It landed. It's uh, doing gangbusters in the, in the, in sales. Uh, is that true or not? Yeah, it is true. It is true. It's okay. uh, done better than almost any uh, recent uh, politician book. Oh, interesting. Um, so the book is, um, is called, uh, the courage to be free, which is a very silly name, but, um, she refers to this as an Orwellian title. Get it? How on like how does that even like what is she talking about? How is it an Orwellian title? So I actually started writing this uh, response to um, or the review of Taylor's book by just you know writing about that because there is this amazing overuse of the word Orwellian um, that people is, is completely divorced from its actual meaning, um, and it's just like Orwellian is like fascism. It's just the thing that I. I'm either scared of with Orwellian or don't like with fascism. So there's a, there's an email on the DeSantis question and he just, sure. I think this week we're going to see him either announce or soft announce his presidency. They formed a, a super PAC or whatever around him mm-hmm. late last week. And people, there's a lot of people at DeSantis land who uh, have an ear on this podcast and mm-hmm. are subscribers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so this comes from Michelle. And give us a lot of shit for the things we say about Rob Sanders. Give us a lot of shit. <laughs> look, if he's going to win, I love, uh, this is just uh, the, uh, me, heartfelt, uh, saying to you, our DeSantis friends, if he's going to win, he's going to need to go through us. All right. So like, he's going to need to sit down. Why do you think I went to Florida? The fifth column primary. <laughs> I'm not joking. Um, <laughs> That's why I went uh, to Florida. We'll see about that. Uh, so the uh, email subject uh, header is the latest Ron DeSantis political stunt. Gents, hoping you might share your thoughts on the recent conversions of three issues that usually gets this crew incensed. Ron DeSantis banned books and media censorship. On Wednesday, Ron DeSantis held a press conference to dispel myths about Florida's recent legislation regulating books in schools. During the conference, he displayed the graphic pages from books found in Florida public schools and the local media had to cut the stream because of the graphic nature playing right into his hand exactly. and leading to his clearly pre-planned tweet. If news stations could not show this explicit content on air, why should it be in our schools? As a free speech loving mom of elementary age children, I'm torn on this issue. Sure. When I was a kid, 
we poured over issues of National Geographic magazines to find a picture of scantily clan natives of some country mm-hmm. or another. Didn't really matter. But I certainly don't remember graphic novels with guys and gals filleting other guys. And mm-hmm. I'm not too keen on my kids seeing that at school either. What say you, trio of parents of elementary or soon-to-be elementary age girls? Mm-hmm. And no matter your personal thoughts about Ron DeSantis, you have to admit he pulls a good political stunt. Uh, I will happily admit that was a that's a pretty good political stunt. Yeah. Uh, I don't but the I don't, problem is they cut the stream and I want to hear I want to have audio of him like saying cock. <laughs> we don't have that. Like, what good is it? Like, I mean the, the best part about the PMRC hearings in the late eighties of Tipper Gore and uh, all the various wives of Washington were scolding um <laughs> different thing was was her readings of the lyrics. Yeah. And yeah. the one that I remember the most, and I've probably said it before, but it's just it's too good, is she was reading, shaking her damn head. A dead Kennedy song. Yeah. That Kennedy's whose politics are considerably to the left of anything that Tipper Gore will ever contemplate in her life. And she's reading it and she's going, kill, kill, kill. Kill the poor. Yeah, this song was ironic, by the way. It's like a, it's like the most left wing song ever written. It's like it's about how like the, the horrible capitalists want to kill the poor. I would love to have Jealous on the podcast. I find I find him fascinating. He's wrong about almost everything, but he did write Holiday in Cambodia, which is um which is, you know, him saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not a guy, I'm not into the Khmer Rouge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was good. That was, that was a good part. But I've had, what, what do you think about the, about this stuff on the, on the books? Cause I have mixed opinions on it. I'm, I see both sides of this in a lot of ways, but, um, you know, and one thing I'll say before, before I throw to you is that one of the, the books that was referenced, um, the Washington Post interviewed the author of the book and he's like, that's not supposed to be in libraries for kids. <laughs> he literally said that. He's like, that's not a kid's yeah. book. So maybe that's yeah. true, but but have you paid attention to this in any detail? Uh, I've tried to stay away from the detail. I think that it. Um, so the first uh, question is: Should books with that stuff be uh, given to or uh, exposed to elementary school kids? And I think basically no. Um, uh, I would err on the side of not talking a lot about fellatio to people who haven't grown a pubic hair. I just think that's like, this yeah, is pretty sensible. Call me crazy, but I think that's a like it's a pretty normal thing. Um, and I think that the the pressure from within the kind of Columbia Teachers College supply of of pedagogy, whatever you say that word, um, is to get more books like that and to get more subject matter like that. Not that people are going like, oh, we got to teach, we got to groom these kids, but it's that we have to broaden their minds and their palates and, and increase their sense of toleration of different uh, possible relationships. I mean, in, in Coco's uh, private school, she has a class of 15 kids. Two of them are theys. Um, uh, and have been since they were seven. Not And, you know, they're, I can say this because this is paying. They're, they're boys. <laughs> they call themselves theys. And there's nothing to indicate that they're going to be anything else but people with penises who do the usual things that are predictable. Uh, from that group uh but like so this is out there and to the extent of which there's backup books you know or backing books for that th- th- no reason to have it out there uh so here's the and part and the types of the way from what i understand and would have read um about the way that desantis has gone about it legally um is that he's given kind of orders to people or to school districts that are vague enough that then they like you know ban a book about roberto clemente or something like that um and this is uh, where it gets even more fun 
I doubtlessly there are teachers and teachers unions and school districts and parents who hate DeSantis or want to to maximize expression who are interpreting those vague things the most absurd Broadway possible so that they can make DeSantis kind of look bad. It's this bad thing. I would say that there is, and this is perhaps torture, but stay with me, um, that there's something similar to the way that um, criminal justice reform has happened, especially in blue cities, let's say New York. So um, a prosecutor or a reform prosecutor comes in and says, yeah, we, we don't want to emphasize as much certain types of nuisance crimes, whatever. And the cops say, oh, so you don't want us to do anything ever about shoplifting. And they'll say, no, we didn't exactly say that. Um, like there's there's self-interested people to say that these oftentimes legitimately vague exhortations or laws are preventing them from doing X. And it's just sort of round of stupid. Um, I think when when it comes to free speech issues, it's incumbent on people to have more than just a Rufo-esque kind of uh, uh, uncareful way of dealing with that and, and telling schools what they can and can't do. You should be careful about that. Um, uh, and But you should also be on the, I think, on the liberal we want books side of things. You should probably not want to have a lot of fellatio available for eight-year-olds. I saw something that he tweeted today. I didn't look into this, so I'm going to say that I, I say this not knowing much about it, but I read the tweet um, and it was something to the effect of in Florida um, public universities we're going to get rid of, um, you know, queer theory and stuff like this as majors, which I think is a very, very bad idea. Um, as I do think getting a degree in queer theory is a bad idea, but that's your own business. If you want to waste your money doing that, fine. But I don't, I don't think that you get th- these things to go away and people to kind of moderate their views and come around to more sensible views by just trying to eliminate them and saying this should not be. But now the books are, are different. That's, this is a harder thing because we're talking about young kids here. We're talking about the things that, you know, if they're overly sexualized, if they're trying to convey some sort of political message, the thing that people on one side don't, you know, I'm, I'm of two minds in this, but the people that are, you know, on the anti-DeSantis side of this, what they never want to acknowledge is that they have a political goal in mind. The political goal is to get children at a young age to think more like them, right? And that's pretty basic in, in what they want. I think the people on the other side want the same thing. But it's not, It's that's always acknowledged that people uh, who want to have some patriotic curriculum, et cetera, they, that they want that. Um, it's always important to remember that, that this is a very, very old struggle. It, it was conservative um, uh, school board members in the 2000s in Texas that there was this big blow up and people had totally forgotten about it. it took over the national news media. You can find, you know, Ross Douthat, you know, early him in college writing columns about this because I looked it up the other day. Every time you want to have a conversation about books prior to 1990, Huckleberry Finn's going to be a part of it, right? And that's like, well, we don't, this very same people that are very upset about Ron DeSantis, I'd love them to all be asked, should we have an unredacted copy of Huckleberry Finn read or read in school to kids. I read that in school when, you know, I was in fifth or sixth grade. It's tradition in America that people read that book when they were in fifth or sixth grade. Um, it's a great book. And I think it was meaningful for me because it's one of the books from that time that I remember. I remember all the kind of details of it. And I found the kind of adventure of it so fascinating. 
if you want to replace that for different reasons, saying that, well, you know, it's fine. You can have that on a recommended list. But I think that now more relevant to the conversation would be X or Y. Fine. But if we, there is this sense that the people who denounce everyone for signing the Harper's letter, which is just about free speech and includes, you know, Salman Rushdie and Noam Chomsky and, you know, yes and no, J.K. Rowling and all this stuff that those people think that's disgusting. And then they turn around and they say, we, Ron DeSantis is banning books and hates speech, hates free speech. Well, you do get into a difficult point where if you don't recommend that a certain book is in a library, I don't know if it's a fair to call it a ban. You know, it's a ban. Banning a book is, you know, banned in Boston kind of thing. Bookstores being coerced by local authorities or by judges or whatever it might be, not to sell a book because it's pornographic in nature, quote unquote, um, that's banning books. This is something different. So I think that there is a, you know, kind of sinister way that everyone talks about it and everyone's saying that, you know, there's groomers, they're trying to make our kids, they're trying to like rape them or something. I was like, what are you fucking talking about? And then the next hand, it's like, they're just banning every book. And this is what the future, the fascist future, which number of mainstream editorials have compl- compared DeSantis on this issue to various dictators is ridiculous. Like, it's like ridiculous. There, I forget who it was. It was Amanda Marcotte. Uh, on one hand, I texted this to the group, but uh, someone came out with a very learned um, uh, Twitter thread saying, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis, a uh, student of history, likes to self-fashion himself as a student of history, Harvard and Yale, whatnot. Um, so he clearly knows the intellectual background of uh, of uh, you know, banning books and her parlance, uh, having to do with like transgender kids or something, uh, is exactly what they did in Hitler's Germany. Yes, like, they were really obsessed with transgender people. That was number one on the list. The transgender question. Um, no, and and and, and yeah, she talks about um, a the Magnus Hirschfeld Sex Institute in Berlin, which was considered to be uh, very loose and very unnecessary. And I'm sure that they talked about transgender stuff too, but it was not tops of the list. I mean, keeping in mind that um, very well known to the leadership of Nazi Germany, that the leadership of the SA was, um, you know, run, headed by a gay man, uh, quite openly so, um, as as open as you could be at the time. Everybody knew that Ernst Röhm was gay. Um, these weren't issues that motivated them in if you read newspapers and not to journey, it's not like every day I was talking about trans issues. But also, you know, I do love the book banning thing always being traced back to the um, torch light parade in February of 1933, in which the Nazi student union burned, quote unquote, un-German books. You don't think that happened before that? Oh, it did. You know that. Okay. So why are you always starting there? Why are you starting there? I mean, for Christ's sake, you know, Gary Lineker, the the football commentator in the BBC, um, said something about um, this migrant bill and said it's it's like Nazi Germany. He says this is just like Germany in the 30s. It, the migrant bill is about, you know, it's it's a it's a it was semi sensible in certain parts, not so sensible in others about people claiming asylum in the UK and, and mostly trying to get people to stop crossing on rickety boats that are run by organized crime. Lineker was, of course, upbraided very reluctantly by the BBC because they have the impartiality rules, which, ladies and gentlemen, is why you don't have a state-run broadcaster. But um, this, the actual content of it is like, wait, what? 
how is why are you always going to this? And why is it, why do you insist on cheapening these debates and saying that Ron DeSantis is Hitler, the Sunak government in the UK is Hitler, everybody's Hitler, everybody's always fucking Hitler. And it's very, very um exhausting. And I think it it to the point of people like the you know, the Holocaust Museum, who do frequently point out that how this cheapens um the tragedy of the Holocaust. So but yes, I think that uh, Chuckles, who was a commenter, um, let's be clear, and I think this is exactly what I'm saying, actually, and I'm guilty of this, and I'm perfectly happy to admit it, half of DeSantis's appeal comes from the media hyperbolically mischaracterizing him. That is true, because when, when you talk about this, it never says much about what you think of his policies. Because I think some of them are, are not very fleshed out in some ways, and a lot of them are there to get attention and get media attention. But the response to it is like, what do we do post-Trump? We've trained ourselves during the Trump years to say that, you know, the people on the other side are Russian agents, they're Nazi interlopers. I mean, the heavy breathing is not going to go away. And the fear that Ron DeSantis is a slicker, like highly educated version of Trump means that they have to attack him with the same fervor. And I'm not sure that, I mean, I'm waiting to see how and if he repositions himself. And I'm just going to hold back. I think the thing that I saw today from Rufo, if I understood it right, and again, I'm acknowledging that I only read this tweet while I was uh, sitting at a stoplight. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't look at any, any, um, in any detail. But if that yeah, is the thing, like yeah. we're going to, you know, uh, ban, uh, a major or a minor or a department, uh, because we think it's too politicized. Um, I don't, I don't like that at all, uh, for, for a lot of very obvious reasons. Uh, I think it's it's clear that he knows that dynamic and has been playing to it. He's wanted that conversation to be directed at him because it makes him seem like he's important to the people who Republican voters hate. Um, and so that makes him more credible um, in, in a lot of people's eyes. That makes him a more uh, like worthy, um, make, basically the only person who can be a competitor to Trump at this point. That could change, but I don't think it's going to really. Mm-hmm. Um but because of that, um, you know, that's has been an important part of the uh, Republican electorate for a long time, uh, whether you like it or not. And um, and he's he knows that. And uh, Moynihan's pointed out when he went did a Vice story, one of his last ones, he, your last one actually, yeah, think, my right? last one, yeah, um, yeah. was about Santos. Nice transition there, pal. Um, <laughs> uh, was uh, there's a difference between the way he campaigns for governor in Florida, yeah. And the way that he po- the positions himself in the media policy world, uh, in the broader uh, context. And Look, I think that's the lesson, interesting. Yeah, the lesson of Trump in so many ways is being, you know, that level of bluster and that dr- beating the drum in that particular way, which sucks up all the oxygen. When you make the people at MSNBC mad, you get a lot of credibility amongst, you know people in the conservative base and you get a lot of airtime you know being jeb bush is not going to get you very far and trump taught us that 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 lesson and we're going to live with that for a long time so when i say how desantis or if desantis will reposition himself will be fairly interesting because if he's going to be president he has to govern in a way where it is a little less heated you say well what about trump well trump lost so and we look at the midterms and those people who were tethered to trump lost too so I just don't think that's a long-term strategy. I think in the in the primaries, it is a, unfortunately a decent strategy and works. We, 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 we.
we know of new methods of attack. One of the things that I find really fascinating is the endless number of pieces that have been written about vice, the internal problems of vice, the, you know, descent from a $5 billion company to being offered literally the other day, $400 million by, by um, this group of black venture, venture capitalists called the Black Group. No, no kidding. Well, um, and, uh, and I'll talk about the Ukraine thing too. But um, the amazing thing about no, no one ever discusses the most basic thing. And the most basic thing is the content. No one ever talks about it. Look at any of these pieces. You'll never hear anyone talk about content. That's true. Never. So they used changed? to. They used well, to when when they I remember there's a big piece I think in the New Yorker about Vice like seven years ago when Vice was still hot. 2014, yeah, uh, 13, yeah. Um, We're all and, expecting something very bad. And uh, and you know it was poking around at the essential kind of like smoke and mirrors uh, element of the operation, which mm-hmm. was that they were selling youth and internet to stodgy old media companies who were terrified. Yeah. And and like edginess, and it was great. It was like a, yeah. a really brilliant business model, but. Those stories always had three or four, like, you know, they dropped in the middle of a gigantic, you know, drug mm-hmm. deal in Colombia in the mm-hmm. jungle or whatever. Like, there was always... Oh, I have some good stories about this. Some story <laughs> that you couldn't imagine... Participatory uh, stories. <laughs> oh, God. You couldn't imagine someone doing... Uh, would you want to tell uh, talk about the uh, Ukraine uh, thing? Since it was yeah, I can mention that. Is that there might there's a couple of things. I mean... We know of new methods of attack. Uh, thoughts on the Taibi Schellenberger nonsense. It was amazing to watch. It was amazing to watch, wasn't it? I I have I've watched most clips and I read Taibi's piece, I, which I linked to on the weekend links thing. Um, it I you can't say that you're shocked at this point, right? Um, or even surprised, but it's still I will could still be you could still be amazed at it. It is. Amazing to watch the who's the the non-voting delegate gal uh, from the Virgin Islands. Yeah, who's actually from yeah, who's from Brooklyn. Uh, who's like you know these people are actual uh, dangers. They people who oppose them. The so-called know, journalists. Problem is so-called journalists. Whether or not you like them or disagree with them, so-called journalists in which Matt had to, you know, like sorry to be pompous here, but here are the awards that I've won. Here are the books that I've written. It's just absolutely absurd. But it, it struck me that. The thing that I've said before remains true. Nobody in Washington believes anything. They say they believe in free speech. They don't believe. They believe in narrow interpretations that benefit their party and benefit their ideology. Finding people who believe in this stuff across the board, it'd be somebody like, you know, Salman Rushdie or, you know, or the ACLU when they defended the Nazis at Skokie. That stuff doesn't exist anymore. It's so much so obviously the ACLU has, has stopped being the ACLU because they don't want to defend people who have bad opinions. But having someone come up there and say, did you make money off of this, dear sir? Did you, yeah. did you benefit from this? To which I texted Matt. I'm like, do you, do you think the fortunes of either the Watergate journalist, Bob Woodward or Carl Bernstein, maybe went up a little bit after they reported the fucking Watergate story? Could you imagine hauling them, some Nixonian asshole, hauling them before Congress and saying, how much money are you making now that you broke this story? Who is like, and he's like, and you know, the incredible thing that if I suspect that I know who gave you this, okay, it's Elon Musk, that you would then abrogate your responsibility to sources and just say, yeah, yeah, of course that was it. It was. It's like, no, I'm not going to tell you it's a source. You're not going to tell us. Are you, are you serious? Have you not? 
I mean, have you not seen something like this in the past? And what would you say? And of course, like people like Jim Jordan, who are speaking sort of eloquently in defense of journalism, definitely would not do that if the situation was reversed. Yeah. Because um, none of them believe in anything. But part of the that somebody would say that, like, you need to give up your sources in a public hearing to me. The, uh, the giving up your sources stuff was something that um, almost never happened until in a modern American history in like post Woodrow Wilson dark days era of uh, American history until Judy Miller. Right? Yes, the, that's right. They hated Judy Miller, who used to work at the New York Times, did all the weapons of mass uh, destruction stories about Iraq. Um, you know that sixty percent of them. By the way, one of the people that was doing those stories was Chris Hedges, and he wants you to forget that. But yeah, yes, he does. Um, and she wouldn't give up her source, and she spent time in Pokey. Um, mm-hmm. And people were, well, I guess that was a preview of the age that we live in now, because people hated Judy Miller so much yeah. back then. Um, mm-hmm. She was a totem of left of center, anti-Bush, uh, and also dr- within the journalism industry, hate. And at the time, I remember writing and uh, and and saying like. Hey, dudes, remember how it's bad when journalists go to jail because the government's trying to compel them to give up a source? That's mm-hmm. bad, right? Um, and that's the problem is that that has now become standard operating procedure. Uh, Barack Obama, uh, his presidency um, broke the records for the number of journalists jailed for not revealing sources. Um, and this has continued uh, uh, under Trump. Uh, this is now what we do. There's, there isn't a sense that that is crossing a line it's not necessarily that there's laws about it and and as uh, i saw i think thomas massey maybe in a different context but this week um was i think it was maybe uh, this very uh this very thing he's saying to be clear i don't believe in journalist shield laws thomas massey said and i kind of i used to be kind of more in favor of it um i've come around to his point of view probably uh, over time which is that we all should have um journalist shield laws or there shouldn't be one like we all can engage in journalism one way or the other but uh one sign of a professional journalist is that their response to compulsion is like fuck you i'm not going to give it up that's normal that should be the expected type of thing and, and uh, the the tone of the clucking about this from those people who didn't understand what substack was and didn't understand how twitter works and like is barry weiss a threesome with, yeah, yeah. With Michael Schellenberger, yeah, just fantastic. I love how he should have responded. Press. You know, she's a lesbian, right? <laughs> uh the uh, the Free Press or Barry or both, like, not interested said, in Michael Schellenberger. Said like, uh, you know, don't you realize that we're a polycule? Um, which is <laughs> pretty good. And then like, give their subscription in- information. Now, the amount of like withering, spitting hostility. Desi- Debbie Wasserman Schultz, I think, was probably the best. Uh, element of that she's somebody who used to be important in the party until she tripped on her own business more than once um but like the withering contempt like uh, uh tybee gives a one word answer of no at some point to some idiotic thing she says she's like it's my time okay yeah that, that, that's always the that's the Kam- uh, kamala harris um i'm speaking which was planned like three days in advance it's constantly saying no no it's my time and it's like no no you are a representative of the people Right. And what you do is you say one word answer. Why? Why are you demanding? Because you're not you're not trying to excavate the truth here. You're trying to get a clip on cable news and you're trying to look good to the people in the party who like you or who may be on the fence about you. But I after January 6th, I did a story with a guy who had footage from January 6th um, that he shot that was really interesting and um, did a story and he didn't want to be 
shown. So we shot him in shadow in Arizona. And he, I, I, there's one thing I regret about that, by the way, because it was right afterwards. And I was pushing back on him and I said <sighs> something about Brian Sicknick being killed during this, which turned out not to be true. And I was, I was wrong about that because I believed things without checking. And that was a problem. And I'm kind of, I cringe when I see that now. I haven't seen it, but I cringe if I did. But he had footage. Lawyers called the entire crew. We were in Arizona and said, okay, you guys need to say if you're willing to go to jail for this person. And there's young people there who were like, I'm sorry, what? And, you know, the reaction to myself and the producer were like, of course, absolutely. Because they were really worried that this stuff would be subpoenaed and that they would come after us and say, we need the footage. And we would say, and the lawyer was like, did you, are you willing to give that? And I said, no, I'm absolutely not. I'm not working for the federal government right now. I'm working on my own behalf. This person has put their trust in me and said, he knows that I think what happened that day was an abomination, but I'm willing to talk to him about it and debate on it. But, but you know, it was a real question for a lot of people of do I want to, because it's like, this is again, the ACLU thing. You're defending Nazis. No, you're not. You're defending a principle. And the Nazis are the ones that are, unfortunately, the ones that are, 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 are testing this principle. I'm not defending, you're not defending the guy who was up there on the hill on January 6th. You're defending the craft of journalism in one very specific way that I'm not giving this. Imagine what would happen if every time you got some sort of, you know, exclusive piece of information that somebody wanted to trust you with, you just handed it over to the government. I'm a lens. Please. That's that's actually an interesting backdrop to the Twitter files itself and just yeah. a modern era, which is that the federal government and other law enforcement agencies found that they could lean on social media companies and other technology companies and said, mm-hmm. give us information about these reason commenters, just to throw an example uh, uh, out there. Uh, and let's, uh, you know, he, what are their uh, what are their personal information? Um, if they wanted to, and they actually have incredible, as we discovered when they that happened to us, um, they have incredible subpoena power to to demand just that. It's it's uh, it's awful to be on the other side of that. Um, it turns it's out really expensive too. It's really expensive too. It turns out the social media companies who operate on a scale so much higher than that, but also don't have the journalistic background. Uh, the back door is through them, or it's even through AT and T communications companies there. So this is where information general information about all of us is being pretty you know they push down the door it doesn't take much from uh federal government the twitter files show how many times or did not exact it shows that it's that it's a very common thing for public officials and former public officials to say hey look i think that you should think about banning these guys they might have something to do with some notorious russian agents actually the the thread on the day uh the twitter files thread on the day of their testimony was really good. I recommend people look at that. The uh, I think it was number seventeen in the series from Tybee at all. Um, and that talked a lot about the very low threshold of of evidence and the lack of evidence that um, federal entities use so promiscuously to try to get people banned, whether it's talking about Russian crap or talking about COVID stuff. Um, and so when faced, they're, they're now used to that. That is that's like the default. And so when they see someone on the, the other side not playing along, they're they're disgust. They can't believe that you're getting in the way of, I think, what is now kind of the normal operating procedure. And also they have 
um, you know, they've sort of flipped the partisan switch of like, if what you're saying is helping someone who I know is, is uh, Hitler, which Elon Musk obviously is, then you must be, you must have gone to the, the other side. And that was probably as almost as dispiriting as watching the clips of the withering contempt was watching the reaction to it, uh, oftentimes by journalists saying like, yeah, I just can't believe what happened to that Taibbi, you know, um, Look, That's oh my God, <laughs> he's he's sitting there uh, posing with Ted Cruz, and I bring up the uh, the National Magazine Awards thing for a reason. I remember having a conversation. Let's I'll vague it out as much as possible, but um, where his work was up and being discussed, and people were like you know he's just so great, he's just like that Hunter Thompson. I like Matt a lot, and Matt uh, and I have actually talked about this privately. He hated, uh, I'm sure he initially loved, but probably ended up coming to hate the Hunter Thompson comparison because he wanted to be his own person and also because if you overdo the hunter thing it is embarrassing uh, which every young male journalist of a certain age goes through that phase and some of us that phase lasted longer than is anything uh, possibly mm-hmm. decent uh, but that you saw that the reason that a lot of people were excited about that was not because of what made hunter thompson good hunter thompson wasn't good just because of the fucking adjectives the adjectives are really funny don't get me wrong. They're hilarious. Um, and he was good, not just because of that drug book, which is really fucking great. And you should keep reading it. Uh, it's good because for 13 or 14 years, he did fantastic reporting. Just, are you kidding me? You can't do that type of reporting. He kind of uh, invented, in many ways, the left of center, all journalism, media criticism racket. The book Hell's Angels is half of it or the first third of it is basically just media criticism here's what everyone says including law enforcement here's what time magazine says okay i'm going to through participation and journalism and reporting i'm going to demonstrate how all of those things are wrong um and have misshapen in public discourse about it it's fantastic it's fantastic um the thing that we were exciting about people journalists about matt taibbi 10 12 years ago was vampire squid right uh, his his famous thing of, of a description of Goldman Sachs. And it's a great description. I love the adjective. Fantastic. Or the metaphor, whatever you say. Um, but like it, the reporting is what has to be good in order to make that really work. So people loved him for his adjective. In fact, Debbie, Debbie Wasserman Schultz in her uh, attack on him tried to set him up because he had some slightly hyperbolic take about the reaction about sources um, and how you decide whether to source something or not. Uh, and she's like, do you still agree with that? The thing that you said? Okay, then therefore you're doing this, this kind of thing. Um, it's people, when you fall in love with the adjectives, then when those adjectives are used against a different uh, class, then you say that person has sold out. Is it that? Or is it that you got too wedded to adjectives instead of nouns and reporting and you're just mad because he seems to have shifted teams because the bad guys like his stuff now. Um, that's what a lot of this was too, the reaction to it. Um, and it's despicable. I, the, the fun part was just the looks on their faces. Type. Yeah, there, just, there was a great battle where he looks at Michael Schellenberger like, are, are you believing what's happening right now? Which it was amazing. And, uh, you know, knowing Matt a little bit, it's just, you know, it was like that. I, I, I could imagine what he was thinking, what he was would have said. But, um, you know, after the fact... The ranking member, uh, Jamie Raskin, who goes and talks about these modifications to the Hatch Act as the Putin Protection Act. And so don't ever think that it's just the shitheads like Ted Cruz that can be so hyperbolic to be like, this is almost embarrassing. 
But uh, the Putin Protection Act, and I think, again, talking about diminishing returns with Trump, I think the Russia stuff is is going to get a little tiresome if they keep trying to pull this, because what they don't realize is that when they won the election, it was, wasn't because of that. It, it was it was not, but it was in spite of that. Uh, the Russia stuff is not is not carrying the day for for uh, Democrats. Sex and drugs and rock and roll is all my brain and body need. Sex and drugs and rock and roll. Very good indeed. Keep your silly ways or throw them out the window. The wisdom of your ways. I've been there and I know lots of other ways. What a jolly bad shot. If all you ever do is business you don't like. Sex and drugs and rock and roll. Sex and drugs and rock and roll. Sex and drugs and rock and roll is very good indeed. Every bit of clothing ought to make you pretty. You can cut the clothing, grey is such a pity. I should wear the clothing of Mr. Walter Mitty. See my tailor, he's called Simon. I know it's going to fit. Don't do nothing.